This program is presented and distributed by Keep the Faith on the web at www.keepthefaith.org. This is a very sleepy hour of day. When I was in the seminary, we used to have scripture at this hour. And the favorite text was, Sleep now and take thy rest. So I feel that I should awaken you by telling you a few stories. Brief ones. I was lecturing in the town hall of Philadelphia on one occasion and lost my way. I met some boys on the street, I asked them directions and they told me 12th and Chestnut or some such street. And they said, what are you going to do there? I said, give a lecture. On what? Well, I didn't want to tell them that I was going to talk on my usual subject, which will be my subject of today, the occipito frontalis of the convolistic convolutions of the metaphorical abiclearum pelbiarum. So I simplified it and said, boys, I'm going to talk on heaven, how to get there. Would you like to come and find out? They said, you don't even know the way to the town hall. And I had a taxi driver once in New York who said, I have a number of uh, eminent passengers in my cab, and I learn much from them. I never went beyond the third grade, but I pick up a number of big words from these passengers. And from that point on, he proceeded to use polysyllables, and all out of context. As I got out of the cab, he said to me, you know, I love to hear you on television. You have such a wonderful voice. It has so much animosity in it. I was lecturing in one of the universities in California not so long ago. And I asked for questions at the end of the lecture. One of the students said, how was Joan in the belly of the whale for three days? I said, my good man, I haven't the faintest idea. But when I get to heaven, I shall ask Jonah. He shouted back, suppose Joan isn't there. Well, I said, then you ask him. <laughs> now the subject, if I told you what it was, he would say, oh, well, I know about it. So I'm going to give you a Greek word just to hold your interest. 
I'm going to talk on kenosis. K-E-N-O-S-I-S. Kenosis. The priests know what it is because in theology we studied what was called the kenotic problem. I'm going to read you an introductory text. It's from St. Paul's letter to the Philippians. I almost said it the other day because I heard a lay reader read the epistle to the Filipinos. It's the second chapter. You must read it over yourselves. It's one of the most beautiful texts in outside of the Gospels. There are three times when the scripture bids us follow the example of our Lord. One is in the first epistle of St. Peter, the other is in the thirteenth chapter of John, and the third is this text. In each and every instance, it is in reference to the victimhood of Christ, to his passion and death. Let your bearing toward one another arise out of your life in Christ Jesus. That's the example. For the divine nature was his from the first. That is to say, he was always God. Yet he did not think to snatch at equality with God. He did not reach out for divinity as Satan did in heaven. When Satan will to be like God, nor as Adam did, when Adam followed the suggestion of Satan, you will be like unto gods. Now our Lord, who has divinity by nature, did not snatch at equality with God, because he already had it, but made himself nothing. That's kenosis. Made himself nothing. In other translations, he emptied himself. But it's more than emptying himself. He made himself nothing. See, you learn Greek when you come to this retreat. It's not every retreat where you can do that. And When you go back today and others will say to you, what did he talk about? Say, you wouldn't understand it. It was in Greek. I'm giving you a tremendous intellectual superiority. but made himself nothing, assuming the nature of a slave. We had in our translations, Father, remember, servant. It's not servant, it's slave. Doulos in Greek. And that term is used of our blessed Lord 47 times in the New Testament. Slave he was. Who's slave? Our retreat is not long enough, otherwise I would tell you about that. But that's the one thing now you want to find out, but I'm not going to tell you. And he made himself a slave. Bearing the human likeness, revealed in human shape, he humbled himself. And in obedience accepted even death, death on a cross. Therefore, God raised him up to the heights and bestowed on him the name above all names. But at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and in the depths. 
and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now that's our text for meditation. Emptying. In other words, what does it mean for God to become incarnate? We've just passed through the Christmas season, and yes, we've thought about God in the form of a babe. But that's not just being a slave. This humiliation of God is difficult, really, to understand. When I spoke to the prisoners last Christmas night, I, I began the sermon by saying, How big is your cell? And they shouted out the size of the cell. It was very small, just a cubicle. And I said, do you think that's small? No, of course, oh, yes, much too small. And I said, listen, gentlemen, the feast that we're celebrating tonight is the feast of a prisoner who was put into a smaller cell than you have. I said, can you imagine omnipotence in the form of a baby? Why, those little tiny hands that were not quite long enough to reach the huge heads of the cattle or the hands that steer the sun and moon and stars in their courses. And here he was locked in the form of an infant. And from that point on, it was a sermon for prisoners. But now to come back to the non-prisoners. Oh yes, how would you, if you were talking, suppose you were asked to talk to about 2,000 inmates of a prison. How would you begin? That's a problem. That was a problem I had to think about. The moment I walked in front of this big auditorium and stood before all of these men, they think I have the white hat, they have the black hat. I'm the good guy, they're the bad guys. And that makes it difficult to have rapport. So how do you start? This is the way I started. Gentlemen, I want you to know there's one great difference between you and me. You got caught. I didn't. From that time on, we were friends because we're all sinners. Well, I'm getting away from kenosis. How can we explain God taking upon himself the form of a slave. Let us use this example. Suppose you love dogs, but the dogs of Corpus Christi were bad dogs. They barked at postmen, they snapped at milkmen, they ran after paper boys, they refused to be housebroken, and they would never obey a command. But because you love them, you did not want to see them so mistreated by handlers. So you decided to throw off your body. You empty yourself of your physical constitution. A corporal kenosis. And you take your mind 
and you put it into the body of a dog. And when you do that, you resolve not to exceed the limitations of that canine organism. You can speak, but you will only bark. You have reason and intelligence, but you will use only instinct. Your head will always be down to the earth when you know that it should be lifted up to the stars. And secondly, there would be another humiliation. You'd have to spend the rest of your life with dogs. You would have to run with a pack. You get sick and tired of hydrants. And then in the end the dogs would turn on you and tear you to pieces. Would you find it humiliating to go into the body of a dog? Well, what is that compared to God taking on the human nature and limiting himself for the most part to all of our all of our affections and also boundaries, which would be far more difficult. When God took a body, he became passable. He was able to suffer. The Blessed Mother made it possible for God to know what pain is. We will talk about that tomorrow morning. And so, though he had a divine mind, he would accept the limitations to a great extent of human knowledge, and he would disclaim, he would not use his divine mind to tell the disciples when the end would come. And he would work for the most part under experimental knowledge. And then, then he'd have to spend the rest of his life with stupid men. We find it hard to spend any great length of time with those who are stupid. And yet, what's our passing an hour with a stupid person compared to God living with man? Perhaps only the only one who could write probably at the beginning was Judas because he came from the right side of the tracks. Men who never could grasp what he was saying. For example, the night of the Last Supper, when our blessed Lord was preparing to leave them and broke out into that magnificent discourse about suffering, what happens? Thomas heckled. Our Lord says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And Thomas says, we don't even know where you're going. Philip says, show us the Father. And our Lord says, Philip, Philip, 
Have I been with you all this time and still you do not understand? The apostles never thought, for example, of his power when he was in the storm, and they were in the storm. So this was not the least of the sufferings that our blessed Lord had to endure. So he took upon himself our nature and became a slave. He took our place. And when he emptied himself, as the epistle here goes on to say, he then was exalted. Now before we come to that exaltation, I want to read for you some verses from the 13th chapter of John, the night of the Last Supper, in which there are a description of six or seven gestures of our blessed Lord which very much correspond to the humiliation of God becoming man. In this 13th chapter of John, we read, well aware that the Father had entrusted everything to him and that he was, had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from the table. That is almost like in heaven, standing, said, all right, I'm going now to earth to redeem man. He rose from the table, laid aside his garments, put aside the glory of his divinity, taking a towel. The towel was the mark of the servant. He tied it about himself. He girded himself with humanity. Then he poured water into the basin, his blood, and began to wash the disciples' feet. Justification, the pouring out of blood, and then wiped them with the towel, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. These were the seven steps of emptying. The kenosis is the beginning of all holiness in us. And it is the condition of our exaltation, which I will speak in a moment. There are two kinds of emptiness. There's the emptiness of the Grand Canyon, which is sterile. There's the emptiness of the flute, through which one can breathe and pipe a tune. The emptiness that we have to have is not that of the Grand Canyon, but of the flute. And on condition that we are empty, God can come into us. Our Lord comes into our souls only when we have a for sale sign out. The condition of sanctification is de-egotization. Get away from selfishness. Excentration. If a box is filled with salt, you cannot fill it with pepper. When we are filled with our own ego, it is absolutely impossible for Christ to get in. That's what hell is. Hell is a place where the ego burns. 
The first of all the Beatitudes, therefore, was blessed or happy. Happy the poor, or happy the poor in spirit. The word are, A-R-E, does not appear in the originals. An exclamation. Happy the poor in spirit. Now, the poor in spirit and the poor here does not mean economically poor. There are two Greek words for poor. One is, I've forgotten. The second word, which isn't important, that's why I forgot it. The second word is, is a word that means utter destitution. First word is a man who lives from hand to mouth. The second word is having, having nothing and no prospect of anything. So that the poor in spirit, the tokev, really means, therefore, that we have no means in ourselves of salvation or justification. That's how poor we are. And when, therefore, you meet a humble person, you can see the possibility of unlimited grace. As soon as we begin to be proud of any talent, even, it may be taken away. What have you that you have not received? If you have received, why do you glory as if you had not? Now, the good Lord has given me the gift of preaching. But I have to use it. If I save myself, he may take it away. And only as I empty myself will I be filled again with his power. This is just another way of saying, as our Lord said, give and it will be given to you. Perhaps we save ourselves too much. I've got to take care of my health. Well, there's a limit to that, taking care of ourselves. If any time you hear that I have a fever of 108 and there's absolutely no chance of ever, ever coming out of this alive, you put me up in a pulpit and say, I'll get out there and save a few souls. I'll be all right. As we give ourselves, we'll be given power. Things that we keep spoiled, the manna that was given to the Jews, for example, they must only take enough for that day, except on Sabbath. If they took more than was necessary for that day, it spoiled, it rotted. The practical lesson, therefore, so far in this meditation is be humble. Spend yourself. We're slaves of Christ. Anything he wants. No limit. And that's the way souls are saved, by extra expenditure. I received a letter once from a woman who told me that her brother was dying of cancer in a public hospital. And she said, I've sent five priests to him and he's throwing them all out. Would you please go? Last resort, Sheen. Well, I knew I wouldn't be treated any differently than anyone else. I went to see him. He was a man, he was a very evil man, not just a bad man. A bad man does bad things. He steals, he rapes, he murders. An evil man may not do bad things, but he will try to destroy goodness.
He may be a boss in an office. Just this conversation may try to ruin the face of the secretary, for example. Well, he was an evil man. He, he spent his whole life distributing literature to destroy the morals of the young. So I opened the hospital door and I said, Good evening, Mr. So-and-so. I remember his name very well. And I left. And the next night I went down and said, Good evening. How are you? And left. I went down 40 nights straight. By the end of 40 nights, 39 nights, I was staying about 15 minutes. But I never once spoke to him about his soul because I knew he would order me out. And the 40th night, I brought down the Blessed Sacrament and the Holy Oils. I said, you're going to die tonight. He said, I know it. You want to make your peace with God? He said, no. Get out. I said, I am not alone. Who's with you? He said, I brought the good Lord. You want him to get out too? And he didn't say anything. And I knelt down alongside of his cot. And I promised the good Lord that if he would show some sign of repentance that I would build a small chapel in Alabama that would cost about $3,500, which was a lot of money for me, which was twice my annual salary in the university. And after 20 minutes without saying anything, kneeling alongside of his bed, I said, do you wish to make your peace with God? He said, no, get out. You want the Lord to get out too? He said, yes, tell him to get out. And if you don't go, I will scream for the nurse. So I quickly ran to the door to prevent his screaming, then came back and put my head on the pillow alongside of his ugly, cancerous, foul face. And I said, promise me that before you die, you will say, my Jesus, mercy. He said, I will not. And he called the nurse and I had to leave. I told the nurse I would come back any time of the night he wanted. And at four o'clock she called and he said he just died. How did he die? Well, about five minutes after you left, he started saying, my Jesus, mercy, and he never stopped until he died. Well, here was an investment. I wasted 40 nights. But it paid off. You know, I really feel that if I had promised a $7,500 chapel, he might have gone all the way. <laughs> but in any case, now we have the empty. Oh, it's about time for me to empty this pulpit, too. We have the emptying, the kenosis. That is like viewing out of a valley. Now, mountains are made, as it were, out of excavated valleys. So if you have the kenosis of Christ, you have a filling up of something. The other Greek word that is used in the scripture is pleroma. P-L-E-R-O-M-A. The kenosis is the emptying. The pleroma is the filling. 
What is the pleroma of Christ? The church. We fill up with our sufferings the body of Christ. So the emptying of Christ was compensated for now and glorified by the filling up of his body. So the church is the new body of Christ. It's not an institution. It's the body of Christ. That is the way St. Paul repeatedly describes it. Just as my body is made up of millions and millions of cells, and the body of mine is one because vivified by one spirit or soul, presided over by a visible head, and governed by an invisible mind, so all who are baptized in Christ and who have received his word are one because vivified by the Holy Spirit, governed by an invisible head, Christ in heaven, and presided over by the visible head, the Holy Pontiff. It's the bride of Christ. That's another way the church is described as the pleroma of Christ. Christ is the bridegroom. Church is the bride. And through the centuries, as Christ physically grew in age and grace and wisdom, so the church is growing in age and in grace and wisdom. Well, we have scandals. Yes, we do. And we happen to have an abundance of them in these days. But after all, there was scandal in the life of our Lord. He said, Blessed are you who are not scandalized in me. Why? That God could go to a cross, that his hands could be nailed, that he could die? As there were physical scandals in the physical Christ, so there are moral, mystical scandals in the mystical body of Christ, which is his church. Today it's, it's the fashion to belittle the church. There will come a day when we'll be very anxious to have her mercies and her prayers. The church has had excommunication and has excommunication in which one can be cut off from the body of the church and even in some very severe instances in the last century were cut off from the suffrages of the church. Today, there are those who cut themselves off from the church. And which is, which is a tragedy for those souls and an, an additional burden to the heart of Christ. Why is it we have to always look on the bad side? That's what the press wants. It's one of the reasons I never listen to news. Because it's always bad. Did you hear about the, the uh, doctor said to this man, he said, you have a very bad case of gangrene, you'll have to come to the hospital and I'll, I will take off your leg. So the day after the operation, the doctor came in to see him and said, I have some good news for you and some bad news. Bad news first. I cut off the wrong leg. Well, how did you do it? Well, it was dark and I didn't know. But I got good news for you. The bad leg is getting well.
So, the, the commentators love to give us bad news. Did you ever notice how their mouth drools as soon as there's an airplane crash? Ninety people are killed. They can hardly wait till they get on the air. Death. There's a kind of a death wish in them. The death wish in the press. Is it because their consciences are bad and they want things to happen to other people in order to expiate vicariously for their own sins? So they pick out all the bad news and so we pick out all the bad things about the church? One is always asked this in an interview, for example, about, oh, the priests that are leaving the church, the nuns that are leaving in the church, and so forth. Certainly they are. May God have mercy on their souls. But when you go into a hospital, how do you describe a hospital? I know one way to describe it. Pus, vermin, blood, amputation, virus, disease, filth. I know another way to describe it. Care, love. Knowledge, service, healing. And the church is like a hospital. And this major mission, mission is healing. And the paroma the church is building up. Look at, for example, Sister Teresa of India. This great and remarkable woman who certainly weighs not over 90 pounds started a community about 15 or 20 years ago in India to take care of the destitute, not the poor, the destitute. And she has 600 novices. Another nun in India who's also taking care of them started a community three years ago and she's got 300 novices. I know of a community in the East, that has 1,200 sisters and they have two novices. What's the difference? Some are saving themselves. You wouldn't be sacristans in a church. You've got to have this, got to have that. So are the priesthood. There's no emptying, hence there's no filling. This is the basic principle of our faith. The humbling incarnation and the exaltation that follows from that humbling. I think the cruelest words of sacred scripture are, you have already had your reward. Believe me, that's frightening. And then the Christ who emptied himself and became the slave is now living in the world in his mystical body of the church. I asked someone whom I will mention at great length later on, who had spent 13 years in a communist prison and in great torture, a Lutheran minister. I said, what was your view of the Western world as you came out of 13 years of imprisonment? He said, the glory of the mystical body, the church. Oh, he says, no, not the church that we have, that we see, and that's comfortable. But I'm thinking of the people in Russia that are suffering, and the great Christians that were in prison with me, 
and the unsung saints throughout the world. This is the greatest thing that I have seen. Men, we've been blessed with great parties. In my own lifetime, I have known personally Pius XI. I can remember one visit I had with Pope Pius XI. He said, did you read Toporelli? He was giving me an examination in philosophy, actually. He said, did you read Taparelli? And I blushed with embarrassment and said, no. He said, you never read Taparelli? No, Your Holiness. He said, you go, when you leave this audience, you go out and buy the two volumes of Taparelli. Now, none of us know Taparelli. But Taparelli, Taparelli wrote two volumes of ethics, and each one in, in October was an enormous volume. So I read through the two. But he felt that my education in ethics was not well-grounded unless I had read Taparelli. Then Pius XII, whom I knew before he was ever pontiff, and then very well when he was. I remember one day during one of the audiences he broke out in an ecstatic prayer. He just simply wasn't in the room. He'd just forgotten the audience. John the 23rd. I got a telephone call one night at the hotel in Rome. And the telephone voice said, Pope John the 23rd wants to see you. I thought it was a joke, but then I better go and find out for sure. So I went to the Vatican. It was about half past nine. At night, the guard said, hurry up. Holiness is waiting for you. When I went in, he said, did I keep you waiting or did I trouble you? And I said, no, but I was surprised that you put in a phone call. Well, he said, I wanted to give you a pectoral cross. So he gave me a pectoral cross. Now he said, put it in your cassock, hide it, don't show it to anybody until you get outside of Rome because it'll make the others jealous. And on another occasion... <laughs> Pope John said to me, he said, you know, the good Lord knew from all eternity that I would be Pope. The good Lord knew from all eternity that I would reach the age of 80. And wouldn't you think with an eternity to work on, he would have made me better looking? He went to a prison and finally came to the death cell. He asked, the warden, why this man was in, he said he killed his wife. John spoke to him, but the prisoner would not turn around. So John asked to go in, and standing behind the prisoner, who still refused to turn to talk to Pope John, his holiness said, young man, I was never married. This prisoner had killed his wife. I've never married, but do you know, if I were married, I might have killed my wife too. Well, from that moment on, they became friends. And then our gloriously reigning Paul VI, whom I saw just about six months ago. And every time he sees me, every time, and I see him at least once a year in a private audience, he always says, do you know that I pray for you by name every single day? 
Well, these are the pontiffs that we have. This is just a quick personal glance at them, but they are holy men, and our church is blessed. So, to conclude, make yourselves little, humble, self-giving, total in relationship to others, keeping nothing back. And the more you empty yourself, the more God can work with you. Secondly, love the church, which is the historical fulfillment of the Incarnation. Love the pontiffs, because when we break away from the Holy Father, we lose something. Our blessed Lord said to the apostles, The devil, the devil will sift you as wheat. The you is in the plural, that is to say you twelve. But I have prayed for thee, Simon, that thy faith fail not. And thou, being converted after thy fall, will restore thy brethren. Our blessed Lord was saying that of the twelve, the one he was praying for was Peter. Even though Peter was weak. And through the influence of Peter and the prayer of our Lord, Peter would strengthen the other. We bishops, we priests, we laity, in varying degrees, share in the prayer of Christ because we are one with Peter and because we are one with Paul. So love the church. And do not tolerate those who would say that you, for example, are only bones or an institution when you know you have flesh and blood. The Church is the safeguard of our liberty. Out in the sea was an island, surrounded by great walls. Inside of those walls, children played, danced, sang. One day some men came in a rowboat to that island. And they said to the children, who put up those walls? They are restraining your liberty. Be free. Tear them down. So they tore them down. Now if you go back, you will find all the children huddled together in the center of the island. Afraid to sing afraid to play, afraid to dance, afraid of falling into the sea. 